This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh. Good afternoon, and, and uh, it's very nice to be able to welcome you all to uh, the next session of our Human Today seminar or lunchtime workshops. I'm not quite sure what we should what we should call them. Um, I'm Susan Manning. I direct the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities, and um, it's a great pleasure to me to be able to introduce my uh, colleague, Professor Michael Ridge. Uh, Mike Ridge is one of our leading academics in moral philosophy and political philosophy today. He also works in action theory, in the philosophy of mind, and in the history of philosophy. Mike received his BA originally from uh, Wake Forest University in 1992. He went on to have a, uh, uh, an MA at Tufts University and uh, a further MA at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1997 where he also uh, took his PhD in 1998. After completing the PhD at uh, Chapel Hill, he spent two years as a postdoc fellow in the philosophy program at the Australian National University and in the Research School of Social Sciences. Mike joined the philosophy department here in Edinburgh in October 2001, so uh, this is almost exactly 10 years uh, since he's, he's been here. Uh, he's work, been working most recently in meta-ethics, and in a series of articles he's developed and defended a new form of meta-ethical expressivism, which he calls ecumenical expressivism, that in, uh, attempts to incorporate important cognitive ele cognitivist elements, sorry, it's very difficult to say this, <laughs> uh, while preserving the main advantages of expressivism. He's currently writing uh, a book on this uh, topic. Mike's also done considerable work on the debate over moral particularism and moral generalism, and uh, he has uh, co-authored a book on, on that called Principled Ethics, Generalism as a Regulative Ideal, which was published by OUP in 2006. And he's going to talk today on David Hume, Eternalist. Question mark. Thanks very much, both for the invitation and that uh, very kind and warm introduction. Um, yes, so... Uh, and I should say that although my current work is kind of in contemporary meta-ethics, the view that I defend, expressivism, is kind of informed by what I take to be some of the important insights in Hume's work, which is not to say Hume himself wasn't expressivist, I'm not really going to take a stance on that, but I, I, I'm basically a big fan of David Hume, and so I always welcome the opportunity to kind of get back to my Humean roots, particularly the David Hume Tower, where I used to have my office, and uh, talk a little bit about David Hume. Now, some of you will notice that the um, title of the paper has changed. So this paper is coming out in Hume Studies, and I just thought of a better title for it, basically. The, the, those of you who know some of this literature might recognize there's a kind of subtle allusion to a paper by David Godier, which was very influential, which I'll also mention in the talk, called David Hume Contractarian. Uh, and so it's sort of a, a vague allusion to that. But of course, unfortunately, even though I'm a huge fan of Hume's, in this particular paper I'm actually criticizing him, so the paternalism is in it to have a bit of a uh, sting, uh, whereas Godier came to uh, praise him. I don't exactly come to bury him, but I <laughs> come to come to raise raise a bit of a worry about one aspect of his views. But at the end, I'll talk about how I think what's really important and insightful in his theory of justice is what, I, which is what I'll specifically be talking about today, can be preserved uh, while jettisoning uh, some some aspects of the view. So here's a roadmap of the talk. I'll start with some general context in terms of Hume's theory of justice more generally. Uh, then I'll talk about this doctrine, which Rawls referred to famously as the circumstances of justice, uh, and in particular, one aspect of that which arises in a very problematic passage in the inquiries, where Hume talks about whether justice would apply to a certain kind of rational but helpless species of creatures that he imagines or envisions. Um, Uh, then I'm going to talk about a standard and fairly familiar objection to his views on the circumstances of justice, which I'll call the problem of exclusion, which is what Jerry Postema uh, has called the problem in an unpublished paper of his. And then I'll t mention uh, briefly the standard reply to that, which involves an appeal to benevolence. Roughly the problem is that uh, Hume's theory seems to exclude from the charmed circle of the protections of justice vul the vulnerable, where you might have thought that that was the kind of group that was most in need of the protections of justice. But in the very passage which raises the problem, he says that we would still stand under obligations of humanity, or you might call them obligations of benevolence, as I typically do, to such a species of creatures. So they're not without any moral protection. You might think that that blunts the objection. 
And so I'm going to go through that standard reply to the standard objection. But then I'm going to argue that that standard reply actually leads directly into a new problem, a problem of paternalism. And in fact, underlies what's implausible about this aspect of his account of the circumstances of justice more generally. And then I'll discuss how much of Hume and Hume's theory of justice and Hume's moral philosophy more generally can be salvaged, even if we think this is a telling objection to this one particular facet of his uh, view. And I'll end with a very useful, com- uh, to my mind, comparison with Adam Smith, but that'll only be a very kind of suggestive, as it were, teaser trailer at the, at the end of the talk. Okay, so Hume's theory of justice. Now, this will be important to get clear on in terms of the broader context, because I could imagine someone responding to my objection by saying, well, okay, he has this passage in the inquiries where he talks about these helpless creatures, uh, helpless but rational, rational creatures, not falling within the scope of justice, but that was just a slip, a bit like Aristotle's sexism. We can just excise that from the theory and the rest will remain. I think that's a mistake. So I think there are fairly deep elements of Hume's conception of justice which lead him to this passage. It's not an accident that he endorses this, and I think you will have to jettison some aspects of the view uh, that are not (laughs) trivial. So I think, in general, Hume's ambition was to provide a fully naturalistic account of justice without presupposing anything spooky, mysterious, or non-natural. And that's exactly what you would expect from someone who characterized himself as attempting to be the Newton of the, of the moral sciences, right? Um, and in, in particular, there are kind of two sides to this naturalistic coin. On the one hand, he wanted to provide a kind of uh, naturalistic explanation, a kind of uh, descriptive explanation of the origins of our conventions of justice and of our concept of justice and practices associated with those concepts. Uh, But at the same time, he wanted to give a naturalistic account of the merit of justice, so a fully naturalistic account of why justice has a kind of normative significance for us, why it provides us with obligations or reasons for action. And both of those need to be fitted into his broader naturalistic philosophy. So justice, in particular, uh, is an interesting case. For for Hume, uh, there's a kind of pleasing symmetry to these two projects, the descriptive and the justificatory projects, in that... uh, he thinks, in a sense, they come to the same thing. Uh, in particular, um, on his account, the origins and the merit of justice are to be understood in, ter- in terms of the utility of justice. Um, and the concept of utility here, though, I think needs to be handled with care. So it would be very easy, uh, given the kind of connotations of utility in contemporary moral philosophy, to think, oh, utility, he must be some kind of utilitarian right, in the same school as John Stuart Mill. And a number of scholars have interpreted him uh, as being a kind of utilitarian or proto-utilitarian. Um, but I don't think that's right. So I don't think Hume was, in fact, a utilitarian. So I take utilitarianism to be a kind of impartialist view which says that the morally right action in general is whichever one of those available to the agent would maximize the total amount of happiness in the world, impartially taking into account everyone affected by the action. Uh, and maybe every sentient being, maybe not just human beings, but also uh, you know, uh, uh, non-rational animals which can feel pleasure and pain. There's a famous line from Bentham about how the question is not can they reason, but can they feel. Um, another aspect to his broader theory is that Hume is a kind of virtue ethicist. So uh, moral evaluation is first and foremost on uh, his account the evaluation of character traits. I'll come back to that point about him being uh, not, not being utilitarian. I haven't argued for that. I know I've just so far announced it, so I'll come back to that in just a bit. Um, just to give him a bit more background, though, Hume thinks that moral evaluation is, in the first instance, evaluation of character traits. Actions and Uh, consequences and so on should all be evaluated indirectly in terms of how they relate to what the virtuous person would care about, choose, uh, take to be obligatory, and so on. So the concept of virtue is kind of primary within his moral philosophy. Moreover, justice as a virtue is, on Hume's view, a kind of artificial virtue. So he famously draws a number of distinctions between the moral virtues and in particular distinguishes artificial virtues from natural virtues. And he also talks about virtue more generally, and actually he's not that interested in the distinction between moral virtues and uh, non-moral virtues as far as that distinction goes, although he does recognize there is some kind of vague distinction there. As an artificial virtue, uh, what that amounts to for him is that the virtue itself can only be understood in terms of certain characteristic kinds of conventions. And in in this particular case, the conventions are those of property and promise-keeping. So that's what justice is, in a sense, all about, respecting other people's property and keeping your promises. You might think justice goes beyond that, but that was Hume's view. And in a way, I I don't know that that's a big deal, because you could think, well, okay, 
maybe we could quibble about the word justice in English, but he's got this interesting normative category in mind. He wants to say that's all there is to justice. We can quibble about the word, but uh, there is this interesting concept of the moral reasons associated with property and promise keeping. So I wouldn't get too hung up on that. Uh, it's also an artificial virtue in that the utility of justice attaches primarily to the conventions themselves. So when he talks about the merit and the origins of justice being found in its utility, he doesn't think that every single just action is utile in, in the relevant sense. And I'll say a bit more about what the relevant sense is in a minute. It's rather that this whole practice we have of respecting people's property and being disposed rigorously to keep our promises is incredibly useful. And so taking part and thereby sustaining those practices uh, and sort of inherits the merit of the utility of those practices themselves. So that, that differs from the natural virtues, such as benevolence or kindness, where each individual action tends to have good consequences. Not always, of course. There can be misguided acts of benevolence, which are appropriately motivated, but which misfire. But they typically and get their merit and virtue of having good consequences here and, and now in virtue of that particular instance of the manifestation of the virtue. Uh, so you get a contrast here with people who think the sentiment of justice is a natural one to us, which doesn't have to be understood in terms of artificial or arbitrary conventions. Um, so someone who thinks that justice is natural, quote, and this is quoting from Hume in the Inquiries, like hunger, thirst, and other appetites. I won't try to do a Scottish accent. I'll just embarrass myself. Um, uh, resentment, love of, love of life, attachment to offspring, and other passions arises from a simple and original instinct in the human breast, which nature has implanted for salutary purposes. Right, so that would be kind of the opposition when it comes to the idea that Hume, that, that Hume had that justice is kind of artificial virtue. And Hume argues that, in fact, our conventions of justice are, are themselves highly arbitrary and makeshift, which he thinks is grist for his mill, that this is a kind of artificial virtue, that the, you know, the various laws in virtue of which someone comes to count as first acquiring a piece of property as his own when it's some unowned piece of land or some unowned resource, and the rules governing when you have legitimately transferred a piece of property to another person. He goes through, you know, Hume was also famously a historian, a number of the different ways in which these things vary dramatically and in ways that seem highly arbitrary. So that is meant to sort of reinforce the idea that justice is a kind of uh, artificial virtue and that what we have here is convention, that is, rules which may be useful to have in some general sense, but the particular details of which are highly arbitrary in the way that driving on the left or driving on the right is a kind of arbitrary choice, though we need some convention or other. So, justice is mutual advantage. So, again, we've seen that the origins of justice are to be understood in terms of its utility. Uh, now, this leads, and also the merit, uh, as will be important later on. This leads to two questions, I think. Useful for Hume, 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 <laughs> rather, and useful as compared to what? So, what's the relevant baseline? And I think the answer to the second question is pretty clearly from the text, the baseline of non-juridical cooperation in the Humean state of nature. That is, we think we imagine what the world would be like if we didn't have any conventions of justice, any conventions governing property and promise keeping. And we see how much utility we gain from having some such conventions or other in place. Um, I say versus the Humean state of nature, you know, if I had more time, I would talk about how that is, although quite a harsh environment, not nearly so harsh as what you might call the Hobbesian state of nature. You know, Hobbes's conception of human nature was quite more dire than Hume's um, in terms of the natural affection that we have for our fellows, and in particular, the, the natural bonds that arise in the context of the family and so on. So although the Humean state, state of nature isn't quite as bad as a Hobbesian state of nature, it's still pretty bad. Uh, and so part of his idea is that we, we are much better off having these conventions in place than we are not. Uh, and also this, I think, makes Hume's notorious conservatism more intelligible. So he famously you know, had heaped abuse on the levelers who thought that property conventions should be revised in a more egalitarian way, people who think that property should be divided according to how much people deserve in terms of how much you know, how hard they work and, and so on, or how virtuous they are. He had various objections to, the, to these alternative uh, kind of property schemes, but I think in a way they all come down to his conservatism, that any kind of attempt to, I, I can't imagine he would be very happy with Occupy Wall Street, for example, right? Any attempt to upturn the status quo puts in danger the existence and stability of these conventions, and they're so incredibly useful by his lights that destabilizing them is too dangerous to be worth the possible marginal benefit you might get in terms of equity or other considerations. Now, I don't endorse that conservatism, but I think the fact that he's thinking in these terms at least helps make it intelligible. Um, the other question, of course, is useful to whom? 
Now, I think the right answer to that for Hume is to those who are to be bound by the relevant conventions, so those parties who are bound by the conventions. That is quite different from the utilitarian's answer, which would be anyone affected, right? You know, someone on another planet, if they're affected by it in some way, someone in another country, certainly. Also, very small children who can't understand the rules of justice yet, who aren't bound by them, might be directly um, uh, figure in, in accounting for the relevant utility. So again, note the contrast with, say, a classical utilitarian view. I think there's considerable textual evidence for this reading, and David Godier, in the paper that my title alludes to the, t- to the title of, is one of the more, most prominent defenders of that view. Um, so, for example, uh, when he explains the origins and merit of justice, he remarks at one point, quote, the whole system of actions concurred in by the whole society is infinitely advantageous to the whole and to every part, right? So, and I read that and to every part as indicating that every single individual reaps some benefit when compared to the baseline of non-juridical cooperation and a kind of human state of nature. So every individual is made at least somewhat better off. Notice again how that contrasts with a kind of utilitarian view where what matters is the aggregate amount of utility, right? So it could be that there are some individuals who are not made better off. But if enough other people are made sufficiently better off to outweigh that, you know, if the numbers come out right for the utilitarian, then you still have a justified practice, all things considered. Right? So, but for Hume, it's important that every individual benefits. And it's, that's important on David Godier's own views in contemporary political philosophy, which are highly inspired by Hume's work, because he has this idea that it's because everyone is better off that the principles of justice can be, can be as it were, defended to every individual, taken as an individual. And so you're not using some for the greater good, as a utilitarian would. Uh, so as I say, a natural reading of that and to every part would be that Hume is holding out for conventions which make every single individual bound by those conventions better off than they would be in a state of nature. And again, that's different than the utilitarian view as I've already sort of elaborated. Another uh, piece of evidence for this is that it sort of fits very well and certainly better than an impartialist utilitarian reading would with Hume's comments on justice as it applies in the international sphere, you know, the law of nations and that sort of thing. He says at one point, quote, The observance of justice, though useful among them, that is to say nations, is not guarded by so strong a necessity as among individuals, and the moral obligation holds proportion with usefulness. So we we see again this idea that merit is proportional to utility. Um, So uh, I think if Hume were utilitarian, this passage would not make a lot of sense. It seems to me that rules of justice in terms of promoting the aggregate utility of everyone on the planet can be incredibly useful, and I think international law and international rules of justice when sensible uh, and when uh, you know interpreted sensibly, can be enormously useful. Um, but I think if we read utility as mutual advantage, so that every nation state is you know the, the, here the players are not individual people but nation states presumably, and so the thought would be mutual advantage would be a matter uh, a function of each nation state being better off with these rules in place than with no rules at all. It may be that you know nation states are just much more. Uh, independent and capable of subsisting on their own, at least when Hume wrote. This, you know, the, the world is more interdependent economically and in other ways today than it was when Hume was writing. But I think the thought was animating him in this passage is that nation states are just much more independent. So they might be, you know, in some cases, if they're powerful enough, not better off with rules that bind them than they would be in a state of nature um, because they're just, you know, they have such power, a kind of international state of nature where they still exist as a powerful nation state but without these rules of justice. So that might, you know, that that mutual advantage view might help explain that too. Anyway, so that's just a bit of background on Hume's theory of justice more generally. Now, he further argues for his conception of justice by discussing various circumstances in which he thinks justice would have no utility and therefore would have never arisen in the first place, these practices of property and promise-keeping. He suggests that... uh, in such circumstances, justice would be pointless, and so this also is meant to confirm the idea that it gets its merit from its utility. So the merit and the um, origins line up in this way. The so-called circumstances of justice, and that label comes from Rawls, who incorporates this view in his classic work of theory of justice pretty much straight out of Hume, uh, with a few, very few minor modifications, uh, are those circumstances in which justice is, as it were, both possible because realistic for creatures like us, and necessary, because without it, we're so much worse off. So, um, Hume suggests in these passages that various kinds of extremities would make justice useless. So extreme scarcity, he thinks, would make justice impossible. 
an extreme abundance would make it unnecessary. If everyone had everything they could ever want, you know, just by wishing for it, then the idea of having property conventions would be pointless. There's no need to divide up property if, as soon as I want something, I immediately have it, without that being some kind of zero-sum game whereby when I win, you lose. If there was extreme scarcity, as you get in the kind of lifeboat ethics kinds of situations, it's just not realistic to expect people to abide by rules of justice when uh, the situation has become so dire. It's me or you, mate, that sort of context. Um, extreme selfishness. So if human nature were quite different, so that human beings were enormously selfish, justice would be impossible for us, psychologically impossible. I take it he has in mind in some sense. Um, Whereas extreme benevolence, again, a society of angels, perhaps, would not need justice because they would be so benevolent that the, the conflicts which may kind of provide the raison d'etre of justice uh, would not be present. So the kind of angelic state of nature presumably would not be so dire, and so the need for justice would be absent. Now here's the notorious passage that gets Hume into a lot of trouble, and this is, I think it's fair to say, not Hume at his finest. Um, uh, so here's the passage. It's quite central to my presentation, so I'm just going to read it out even though it's kind of long. He says, uh, when he's talking about these other various circumstances and when justice would, would never have arisen, he says, were there a species of creatures intermingled with men, which, though rational, were possessed of such inferior strength, both of body and mind, that they were incapable of all resistance and could never, upon the highest provocation, make us feel the effects of their resentment? The necessary consequence, I think, is that we should be bound by the laws of humanity to give gentle usage to these creatures, but should not, properly speaking, lie under any restraint of justice with regard to them, nor could they possess any right or property exclusive of such arbitrary lords. Our intercourse with them would not be called society, which supposes a degree of equality, but absolute command on the one side and servile obedience on the other. Whatever we covet, they must instantly resign. Our permission is the only tenure by which they hold their possessions. Our compassion and kindness the only check by which they curb our lawless will. And as no inconvenience ever results from the exercise of power, so firmly established in nature, the restraints of justice and property, being totally useless, would never have a place in such an unequal confederacy. Um, we started a little bit late, didn't we, in terms of my time? Yeah. Um, so some initial thoughts about this passage. One thing is I think it further confirms the mutual advantage reading uh, of utility. Right? I think you can see why, if you think about justice in terms of its being mutually advantageous, that the strong have nothing to gain uh, in self-interested self and self narrowly selfish terms from including the, the, the weak who can in no way make their resentments felt. Um, unless they happen to have sympathy with them, but then, then Hume thinks that's really a duty of benevolence or kindness which stems from one's sympathy as opposed to a duty of justice which has its origins in utility qua mutual advantage. And I think this in turn suggests that the roots of this passage really do run deep in Hume's account of justice. This is why I think he couldn't just sort of jettison that passage and leave the rest of his theory completely intact. I think if you have a conception of justice as mutual advantage, then you probably are committed to something like what he says in that passage. So it's not some something that can be easily excised, as with arguably, say, some of the sexism you find in Aristotle. So I think that would be a bit too glib. And moreover, the account has been influential in modern theories of justice. As I mentioned before, uh, John Rawls, in you know, what's without a doubt the most important work in political philosophy in the 20th century, a theory of justice, incorporates it more or less whole cloth. He revises it quite a bit in his later work as he becomes more Kantian, but it still plays a role in his thinking, I think it's fair to say. So um, again, most notably in the work of John Rawls, we find this idea. He glosses the circumstances in which the concept of justice applies, as including rough equality of power which is actually a stronger condition, I think it's worth noting, in fairness to Hume. So he, even though I'm criticizing Hume, I will say that Rawls, I think, goes wrong in requiring rough equality. In the passage above, Hume doesn't require rough equality. I mean, he mentions a measure of equality, but it's clear that he just means some ability to make the effects of our resentment felt or to, to uh, resist. And I think even very young children can make their resentments felt, right? But they are hardly equals to adults when it comes to power, whether physical or intellectual, to use both of the categories that Hume mentioned. So Rawls is... Uh, requirement in a theory of justice is actually quite a lot stronger in terms of rough equality, right? So, you know, having a seven-year-old, I'm quite familiar with the idea that even very young children are quite good at making the effects of their resentment felt. Um, I think anyone who's parented or dealt with small children will agree. Um, so I think Rawls, actually, in a theory of justice, is even more vulnerable to the worries about this than, than Hume himself was. Now, we can debate whether very young children feel resentment as opposed to anger, um, you might think resentment requires some moral concepts. Um, but for Hume, actually, resentment is, as we saw in one of the passages I quoted above, a simple and original instinct implanted in the human breast. So it, 
what he, whatever we might mean by resentment, which might involve some kind of sense of moral having been morally wronged, and so not something that a neonate would be capable of, clearly. Uh, Hume seemed to have in mind something more simple when he talked about resentment, and it's, it, it's his conception of resentment we're talking about when we talk about that passage. So it seems likely that even babies can feel resentment in Hume's sense, um, and presumably can make their resentments felt, as the you know, images I've put up before suggest. And even on a more demanding conception of resentment, I think um, it's obvious that an individual might be able to make his or her resentment felt by those who are much more powerful than him or herself. Just think of various historically oppressed minorities. I think you know, they, while unable to topple the oppressive regime, have been able to make the effects of their resentment felt in various ways. Okay, so this leads quickly to an objection, which was noted very early on by Thomas Reed, and which has been taken up by a number of other theorists since then, right up into the present day. The problem of exclusion is what Postuma calls it in an unpublished paper. So pre-theoretically, you might have thought that justice is especially important for protecting highly vulnerable groups, right? That's just a very intuitive thought. Uh, so the idea that the kinds of rights associated with justice just don't apply if you have creatures which are weak enough to not be able to make their resentments felt seems just deeply counterintuitive and even perverse, particularly when you stipulate that the creatures are rational. I mean, you could imagine someone saying, well, non-human animals, we do owe them duties of kindness, but because they're incapable of reciprocity and recognizing norms of justice and reciprocating in kind, the concept of justice doesn't apply. And clearly, they can't make promises or even understand kind. But, but the, the species of creature that Hume imagines, the purely hypothetical species of creatures, are rational, fully rational, just as rational as us. It's just that they're completely helpless. So that seems perverse. So Thomas Reed was an early... Proponent of this objection, he says, quote, surely to be treated with justice would be highly useful to the defenseless creatures here he supposes to exist. Now, clearly, this relies on a kind of equivocation on useful. So, I mean, he's, he's wrong. If, if Reed's suggestion here is that Hume is misapplying his own principles, I think that rests on an equivocation on useful as between mutual advantage as opposed to something closer to a kind of utilitarian reading. But I still think the intuition behind the objection is right. So I think it's important to get clear on the problem. I think the real problem here is that uh, the kinds of reasons for which Hume would exclude these hypothetical creatures strike us as the wrong kind of reasons. So it would miss the point of this objection, the problem of exclusion, to say, oh, well, in fact, all the groups that you might think are, in fact, in the actual world, protected by justice, can, to some extent, make their resentments felt. Because even if it's just a purely hypothetical case, if our intuitions are very strong that even in that case justice applies, the theory is mistaken. So again, the, the merely hypothetical cases will do. Now Hume, of course, responds. So this is where we get the stock reply to the stock objection from exclusion. He often replies, and in fact in that passage I quoted even, uh, says that these creatures don't fall outside the charmed circle of morality. It's just that they fall out of one sub, sort of one, uh, one sub, sub department of that uh, circle, as it were. So they, they do, uh, we do owe such creatures uh, duties of beneficence or kindness. Uh, he says, quote, we should bound by the laws of humanity to give gentle usage to these creatures. Um, notice, by the way, how patronizing that sounds in a way. I mean, that's going to kind of underscore the point about paternalism, which I want to make as, as the kind of main criticism in, the, in this presentation. So the reply doesn't seem full of satisfying, even when you take it in an uncertain term. That is to say, our intuition was that such creatures deserve, in virtue of their rationality, and they could be as rational as, and as autonomous as a Kantian might like, in virtue of that status, they deserve to be treated with justice as well as benevolence. Um, so it doesn't look totally satisfying. And in fact, and so that's, you know, that exchange is, um, is an old one, and, and, and I think people who are critical of the Humean view tend to think that this is um, just pitifully inadequate. It's not, the, 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 the protections in place are, are not strong enough. What I want to now argue is that in fact this move, this appeal to duties of benevolence and kindness, actually underscores why Hume's theory doesn't provide the right sort of protection. So, so far from mitigating the original objection, it actually heightens the, the amount of pressure on Hume's view. So out of the frying pan and into the fire. Um, so I think it's a familiar idea that forcing a competent and informed adult to do what's in their best interest, just because we take it to be in their, in their best interest, is a kind of injustice, that kind of paternalism. Justice requires, that, rather, that we treat autonomous and rational adults with respect. And this means letting them make what by our lights are their own mistakes, so long as they don't harm anyone else or violate anyone else's rights. So, you know, if this seems controversial, contrast a parent making her five-year-old eat her greens and me trying to force a colleague to have a more healthy diet, right? We take the one to be perfectly acceptable, in fact, maybe even required by duties of good parenting, the other to be offensive, uh, busybody, 
uh, ludicrous moralizing and so on. It depending, it's particularly depending on whether I use the same level of force as or that I would use with the five-year-old. <laughs> um, now think about the stock human reply to the problem of exclusion. There's an appeal to how we are, are bound by obligations of benevolence, that is, of promoting the best interests of the rational but helpless creatures and so on. But benevolence, if not tempered by justice, often requires paternalistic intervention, as we've just seen. That's why, again, parents have not only the right, but the duty to interfere with decisions of their young children. You know, forget about eating their greens. If my seven-year-old decided to take up smoking and I said, okay, you know, light up, that would be a bad parent. Even if it was legally allowed, uh, that doesn't matter. That, so, you know, you have obligations uh, to interfere in those cases. So I think, if you think that justice prohibits that kind of offensive meddling and paternalism when you're dealing with other fully rational and autonomous beings, that actually the appeal to our having duties of benevolence or humanity actually brings the deeper problem for Hume's theory in excluding such rational creatures from the protections of justice into sharper focus. So let me give an example to try to strengthen this. This will bring out the fact that in addition to being a fan of the Scottish Enlightenment, I also am a bit of a Star Trek nerd. So uh, there's a, an episode from, this is the next generation, so if you've only watched the original Kirk version, this involves Jean-Luc Picard, uh, in season three, episode two, The Ensigns of Command, uh, you get the following sort of setup. The Enterprise gets an automated message from the Sheliac, a kind of obscure species who are going to destroy uh, all the creatures on this planet, which they are, by a treaty with the Federation, entitled to take over. The people in the Federation didn't know it was inhabited at the time. And if they don't remove the humans on this planet, Tau Sigma 5, in four days, they'll all be wiped out. The Sheliac are a non-humanoid species with little regard for human life, and they would just exterminate them all without a hesita- you know, moment's hesitation. Um, the humans on the planet are not inclined to leave when they're told this, though. So Data, who's an android, goes down and tries to convince them, but they feel kind of bonds of history to compel to stay, where, you know, as one of them puts it, my grandparents are buried on this hill, and there's all this history, and they've worked very hard to survive in this harsh environment on this planet, so they don't want to leave, even though they're made aware of the risks. And Data does eventually convince them to leave in the story, but this is not easy. That They really are very strongly resistant to it. So, you know, here we have Data trying to convince this stubborn uh, person on the planet to leave. Uh, I think we can modify the example so it's more helpful for my purposes, right? So in the, in the actual episode, they do leave. But suppose, um, suppose we modify the story so that they feel compelled to stay. And even, even when they're fully convinced that what Data says is going to happen to them is true, that is, they'd rather die than leave because their commitment to this planet and its history is so important to them. And so they're not convinced to leave. We can also add that if they stay, that, you know, their deaths would not only be inevitable, but also be kind of extremely painful and drawn out, just to make it clear that it would be in their best interest. This is not just sort of, we're not sure what's in their best You can be pretty sure it wouldn't be in their best interest to leave. You might wonder whether they're, so I, I, I take it you can see where I'm going with this. The thought is that these creatures are rational, but they're incapable of making their resentments felt, right? So you might, you, you might want to know, first of all, that Data cannot feel their resentments at all because he's incapable of feeling at all. He's a rational android, but he's famously incapable of emotion. He does seem to have a moral conscience, though, a kind of Kantian moral conscience, you might think. He understands certain kinds of moral reasons and is motivated to act on them, but he doesn't feel resentment. So they can't make him feel their resentments, um, in the sense that I think Hume has in mind. Um, And we can further stipulate that those humans on the Enterprise can't be made to feel their resentments either. We could fill in the story a number of ways. Maybe they can't tune, they just refuse to tune into their complaints. That is, they just won't turn on the communicator and talk to them so they won't listen and they, you know, they're up on the ship and can utterly destroy them. So if you require a modicum of equality and a power, clearly, given the technology that the, the, the Trekkers have, as it were, they're, they're just massively more powerful. Or they have no sympathy, perhaps, with this seemingly utterly irrational attachment that these people have to their home planet. So they just, they're not moved by it, even if they are aware of it. And so that, you know, there's no possibility of resistance. You know, if, if the people on the Enterprise want to beam them to this other planet, they will be beamed. They don't have any ability to resist or, in human sense, make the effects of their resentments. Yet they're rational, and we, we might think there's something odious about forcibly removing them. So that's kind of where I'm going. So suppose Jean-Luc Picard has them forcibly removed to another planet, one that's rich in resources and safe. Would this be just, having done it against their will? And we can stipulate that there are no children involved as well, because obviously that's a complication. Just stipulate that for some strange reason these are all adults. Okay, that does stretch the imagination a little bit. Maybe they've all gone sterile recently, so they haven't been able to reproduce. There are various ways you can change the example. Um, of course, those of you who are real Star Trek nerds like me would know that this would violate the Prime Directive, right? Uh, the Prime Directive prohibits uh, members of the Federation from engaging in even well-intentioned interventions that would alter the development of an alien culture, and transporting them to another planet clearly would violate that, right? But um, 
But this just requires a further modification of the example. And again, this is just for the benefit of those of you who know Star Trek. You just go old school, right? So Picard maybe wouldn't violate the prime directive, but Kirk certainly would have. Right? Sorry, I digress. <laughs> um, so uh, the example, I think, illustrates the problem for Hume. Uh, Hume's theory seems to entail that it's kind of a no-brainer that the people in my modified version of the example should be forcibly relocated to another planet. And I think this just seems wrong. Here we have a conflict intuitively between justice and benevolence. Considerations of justice would require giving some weight to the considered preferences, even the self-destructive considered preferences of those people on the planet, in the same way that we think people have, competent adults have a right to smoke, even though we know that it reliably tends to lead to premature death. And Hume's theory is incapable of delivering this. For him, it seems that we have reasons of benevolence or of humanity to treat these creatures with gentleness and you know, to be kind to them, but no considerations of justice whatsoever. So there's nothing to temper that duty of benevolence. So it seems like paternalism is not only permitted, but required by his theory in this kind of case. Now, you might think, all things considered, that's the right thing to do. That is, you might think, okay, because they're going to be wiped out and it's going to be really painful, they should be moved, even though it would be unjust. You might think, in this case, benevolence trumps justice. Now, Hume himself actually thinks justice almost always trumps benevolence, and there are complicated reasons for that. But regardless of what you think of that, you, you should still think, I think, that there's a kind of conflict between two kinds of moral reasons here, reasons of justice on the one hand and reasons of benevolence on the other. And you can think, well, maybe the reasons of benevolence are so weighty they're stronger. But for Hume, it's just there's no other reason, right? It's a no-brainer, as I said. You know, there are duties of benevolence, and these creatures fall outside the scope of justice. So there's no competing consideration whatsoever uh, except the fact that they'll be a bit miffed. But you know, clearly, that in terms of benevolence and, and their overall happiness, in the long run, we can imagine they would adjust and would be happy and certainly better off than they would be undergoing a painful and prolonged death. Now, at this point, someone might raise a kind of charge of anachronism. But as they might say, well, Hume just doesn't share your liberal sentiments and sensibilities when it comes to the odiousness of paternalism. That might be true, so the objection might seem anachronistic. But my point here really isn't to refute Hume entirely on his own terms. That is to say, not every objection to a philosophical view is of the form, your view is internally inconsistent, right? My view is that it has implausible consequences, and so is not correct, so is not false. If Hume doesn't share that intuition, then so much the worse for his moral sensibility. Uh, moreover, um, Hume's theory has been influential. As I've already mentioned, Rawls has taken it up, so have a number of other political theorists. And, in my, and so I think it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, the view, his view of justice, his view of the circumstances of justice, that kind of whole package is really fascinating. And I think it would be a mistake to treat it as a kind of museum piece. And so to launch criticisms only that can be understood, uh, granted uh, premises that Hume himself clearly would have uh, endorsed. And I think the salient question is what there is that remains of philosophical importance and, and that, that's genuinely insightful that even if we think this objection works, we can retain usefully. Again, think of Rawls's work. And I think that you know, the question has genuine practical importance as well as theoretical importance. So think about uh, the case of global warming, right? Here's a very clear case. Uh, you know, suppose uh, our pollution today is a sort of ticking time bomb so that it will have consequences in 100 years, um, but no consequences for us. Let's stipulate. I mean, that's pro at this point, we probably will be feeling some of the consequences. But at some point, it may have been the case that the amount of CO2 that we pumped in the air would have consequences. But for people 100, 150, 200 years, radioactive waste might be another example, right? Eventually, it's going to cause problems, but, but not for a long time. Um, future generations clearly cannot make us feel their resentments or resist us simply unless they develop a TARDIS or you know, a time machine because cause must precede effect. So they fall outside the circumstances of justice, as Hume defines them. But that seems not obviously right. You might think there's a kind of injustice in our you know, using up all the resources or creating these ticking time bombs with pollution or what have you. So it's not as if this is a purely theoretical question. So I think taking it on, again, not as a museum piece, but as a kind of live option or an interesting view that is worth challenging is worthwhile. Um, it should be at least intelligible that we act not only wrongly but unjustly in polluting the atmosphere, given that it has such dire consequences for future generations. So we should ourselves get clear on what the circumstances of justice actually are. And thinking critically about Hume's view, which is subtle and interesting and influential, I think is helpful. So what can we keep in Hume's theory? I think um, we, can give, we can give up on this aspect of the circumstances of justice, but I think, of course, you know, what, you, what, 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 you, what insights you think you can preserve will depend on what you think is insightful in Hume, and that would be a very long discussion. And I know I've already gone over time a little bit. My view, though, is that the problem of paternalism that I've raised undermines Hume's conception of the sole merit of justice as being a matter of its utility. Right? So um, 
there's much in Hume's account of justice which I think we can retain while jettisoning that. So we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, so here's some insights, to my mind, insights we can hold on to. First, we can agree with Hume about the origin of justice. Nothing I've said undermines his account of the origin of justice. Indeed, I think many cases of what we think of as involving injustice in history fit depressingly well with Hume's concession of what sustains our conventions. You know, cases in which minorities of various kinds are oppressed. Think of the way, uh, you know, settlers mistreated Native Americans, which Hume himself talks about, and so on. Um, so his descriptive account, I think, we can, as far as these arguments go, hold on to. We can also agree that justice is an artificial virtue in Hume's sense, and we can hold on to Hume's sentimentalist metaethics, which in terms of the expressivist theory that I'm working on is quite important, so far as this argument goes. This argument just keeps all of that, that part of Hume's uh, moral philosophy intact. And in fact, you can see a kind of sentimentalist moral philosopher from the same period and uh, region, uh, topically enough, in Adam Smith. So Adam Smith also was kind of in the air, right? Developed a kind of sentimentalist theory where morality, as, as, as it were, more properly felt than judged of. I mean, to really spell this out, I'd have to tell you about sentimentalism, but again, I don't have time for all that. Um, but he endorses a sentimentalist theory, which he argues for and defends, which doesn't take on this tendentious commitment about the circumstances of justice. And I think this is in part because he has a different view of the merit of justice, and also his moral philosophy is interestingly different, whereas Hume has the idea of a, a common point of view as being a kind of standard of correctness, um, and that involves thinking about the effects of a person's actions on those in his narrow circle, his friends, loved ones, acquaintances, people he interacts with directly. Um, uh, Smith has something closer to a more utilitarian conception. He's not a utilitarian, but it's closer to that, and then it's less parochial. It's a kind of impartial spectator, as he calls it. And Hume's common point of view has one sympathize, again, only with those in the narrow circle, but Smith's view goes well beyond that and takes a broader view of the likely consequences of an agent's actions. Smith also incorporates a kind of stoical element into his theory. So in addition to utility, the concept of propriety, where that's to do with some notion of fittingness, but which he tries to understand not in a problematic kind of moral realist way, but in a kind of sentimentalist way. And I think that can be helpful, too. He takes these ideas in interesting ways from the Stoics. But he does it in this kind of sentimentalist framework. So if you think sentimentalism in Hume is part of what's exciting and interesting about the view, that can be pre preserved without this problematic commitment. Um, but of course, I can't do justice to Smith's theory of justice here. As I say, I know I've already gone over time a bit. But basically, perhaps with regard to this particular point, we should prefer this very tasteful statue of uh, Adam Smith from what we find just down the road. Uh, this ridiculous toga uh, rendition of one of my philosophical heroes. Or perhaps we should prefer this, which is the Adam Smith building in Glasgow, to this. Uh, on the other hand, it turns out David Hume has an action figure, and I can never resist the temptation to display this, because I think that's just great. Again, you can see I'm a bit of a sci-fi and comic book nerd. Um, and that just seems vaguely topical to me. Thanks. <laughs> I'm sorry, I went on a little bit longer. Thank you. We do have some time for questions Good, yeah. or, or comments, thoughts, so uh, please do take advantage of the mic here to ask. Thank you for your very insightful talk. I just have a, a question concerning sympathy, what you said uh, on the difference between Hume and Smith. As far as I understand sympathy in Hume, Hume would also agree that insofar people are involved in a sort of system of justice, they need sort of impartiality. I mean, I should not let my sympathy go only to the people belonging to my narrow circle. And mm. I would say that he's, on that point, uh, the equal of, of Adam Smith. I see no real difference there. It depends on what you mean by impartiality, obviously. So philosophers sometimes use that as a term of art, and I think sometimes a better term would be impersonality, which is what Nagel means. So I think you do get a kind of impartiality. He definitely does talk about those in the narrow circle when he's characterizing the content of the the uh, common point of view. But you know, even when it comes to even even if you're right, the best interpretation will be one on which, when it comes to justice, every individual who's bound by the conventions of justice counts equally. Mm -hmm. It's still going to be the case that you don't have the same kind of I don't know if you want to call it impartiality or the same level of universal scope that you find in Smith. So even people not bound by our conventions of justice may matter to which of our actions are just on Smith's view. So people in faraway countries, very small children who are rational to some extent but not powerful enough um, and so on, they might fall outside the circumstances of justice for him but not from Smith. So there'll be a difference in the extension. Um, so I think Smith could you know, deal with the Star Trek example effectively. At least there's nothing in his theory in principle that prevents him from saying 
what a kind of someone with a liberal sensibility about paternalism would want to say. Um, but I think there isn't, yeah. I don't know very well, but I still have the impression that also Adam Smith would say that justice depends on having a sort of system of, of law and jurisprudence. And out of that, talking about just becomes quite, quite vague, I think. Well, uh, I mean, there's another aspect to Hume's theory which is potentially problematic. There's the kind of um, aspect of conservatism and the way in which the theory is deeply conventional. So that's that's true. Um, and so if I had more time, I would have maybe talked about how that part of Hume's theory also, I think, should be jettisoned, the conservatism and the kind of endorsement of whatever conventions we happen to have. But I think you can think about his doctrine of the circumstances of justice as kind of detached from that commitment. So if you put that commitment to one side, the question will be not what conventions are actually in place, but what conventions are possible for individuals like this. Now, as it happens, in my example, the Federation did have conventions in place, uh, that the prime directive. Um, but uh, I guess on Hume's view, those would not be conventions of justice, strangely enough, because of his account of when the concept could possibly apply, as extended to these helpless creatures. Um, but regardless of that terminological question, a better case would be one that's, again, slightly modified from the actual Star Trek example, in which there wasn't any such convention, but one could be adopted, or one could act in such a way as to be consistent with such a possible convention. Right? So you can still understand what would be just in terms of either what conventions we can get to from here, or as Rawls does, in terms of some hypothetical set of rules and principles and conventions, um, and then ask what circumstances are such that those conventions make sense or have utility or have a point, and then then you can test Hume's conception of the circumstances of justice against the background of that more progressive, less conservative, kind of whatever arbitrary conventions we happen to have around the place, those will do. You know, I think that, so I do think the conservatism of his theory is highly problematic, but that's, that's kind of been beaten to death, so I didn't want to talk about that. So I'm kind of assuming we can jettison that, too, and still hold on to a lot of what's insightful in Hume. Uh, uh, you know, what about paternalism? I thought it was a little one-sided in favor of the extreme liberal because you made it sound as if the, the opponent would have to be something like you're using force to do and you know, someone wants to smoke, you know, like break their cigarettes in half or something. Or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there are other examples also, but uh, uh, there are lots of practices which we actually give rather low status to in the liberal culture I and mean, bestiality. Uh, sadomasochistic contracts with mutual consent. There's quite a few like that. Uh, now, I, I agree with you on a liberal view, one shouldn't beat up such people. But on the other hand, the whole kind of thing in between, rather than give them equal status and not be, there are things like, you know, give them lower status. For example, you might argue that, of course, we don't put smokers in jail or people who are uh, indulging bestiality in jail, but we give to those forms of life lower status. So you tax cigarettes, or, uh, and bestiality clearly doesn't have uh, uh, equal status to other kinds. Yeah, I mean, in the case of smoking, you can argue that there are other affecting harms of various kinds. Uh, and also, you can argue that taxing, we, uh, we tax people for all sorts of things that don't imply blame. So taxing isn't as such a punitive measure. I mean, we might do it with a view to the common good, but it's not a way of saying you're doing something wrong and we're going to punish you to get you back into line. Bestiality is a harder case, I agree, uh, for the liberal. Um, so, I mean, there's various things you can say about that case. I mean, so you could, say, you could, with Peter Singer, say that that's just misguided, right? I mean, he's explored the idea that it's perverse in modern culture, that so many people are perfectly happy to endorse factory farming, which causes enormous suffering, whereas bestiality in some cases maybe doesn't harm anyone, including the animal. So you could, you could go that way. You could say that that's mistaken, following the kind of liberal premises where they lead. Or you could say, no, there's something wrong about it, but you could explain it in terms of its indirect consequences, right? Uh, and then you could argue that those indirect consequences are sufficiently dire, uh, that considerations of general utility trump considerations of justice. So my point really was just that there are still considerations of justice here. I think even in that case, we should feel the force to some extent of that complaint, that I'm not harming anyone, and I'm a competent adult, I'm not harming this animal even, uh, assuming that's the case, that's an empirical question. Um, I mean, you might have views about whether the concept of justice applies to animals, and whether there's a, you know, some concept of rape or violation could apply. I mean, I suppose you could raise that bizarre worry as well. I mean, we're getting into somewhat distant waters from the, those that I was trying to tread in. Um, 
But as long as you think there's some kind of reason of justice to be weighed on the other side, even if you think it's outweighed, <coughs> that seems like a reasonable view to me. But my, my, so my point was just that for Hume, justice just doesn't come into it at all for these kinds of creatures, and that seems wrong. There ought to be some consideration of justice that put, gives us some pro tanto or prima facie reason against paternalistic interventions like this. That's consistent with thinking, actually, quite often, paternalism on balance is justified. Justice isn't so sacrosanct as Hume thought it was. That's an available view. That's not a view that I think is obviously mistaken. Maybe justice is overrated. But justice does provide some kinds of constraints, and they should be taken into account. And it can't be reduced entirely to considerations of benevolence. In fact, the two seems to pull against it. No, I would be worried by your concentration on the example of the treating them like a child and that you lose force. Maybe that was a bit unfair. That was just a way of making vivid the idea that we do have these anti-paternalistic intuitions. But you're right, that you know, there, there are different ways to intervene with people's um, self, uh, self-harming behaviors. That's true. Um, and there might be reasons that aren't reasons of justice with adults to take a different approach. For one thing, it'll be more effective, right? If I try to persuade my colleague to eat more healthy, uh, that will probably, you know, be more likely to work than if I grab the steak and <laughs> throw it in the rubbish and <laughs> have all kinds of bad consequences. So there can be non non justice based reasons for preferring some methods of behavior control than up to others. That, that certainly that's true too. I wouldn't want to deny that. Um, it's a very naive question. some point in his life, I mean, Hume, in his time, in, uh, in, during his period, he must have seen people being hanged in Grassmark, um, and uh, inquiring, you know, what was the cause, what was the, the crime? I mean, he might have learned that they, they were being hanged for stealing sheep or something to feed their children who might be hungry. And I understand he had cousins who were in the legal profession, so even if he didn't he must have been aware of such instances. Now, um, does he ever, how does, does he comment on such a, this kind of situation in his own time? Does he, what does he say about it? I don't know that he discusses that particular example um, of people being hanged to steal food for their children. But he does seem to take the view that justice is a kind of inviolable principle. So, I mean, I suspect he would not object to those practices. I mean, first of all, because of his conservatism, that would seem to commit him to thinking that those practices are ones that we just have to live with, even if they're not in some grander sense ideal in terms of their utility for everyone affected. Um, but he also does just explicitly say at various points that, you know, justice is, is, is a sacred or inviolable principle and cannot be... Um, softened for considerations of benevolence because I think he thinks it leads to a kind of slippery slope. Once you start making exceptions to the rule, there's no principled way to draw a line, and so the whole institution is then thereby endangered. I, I don't endorse that line of argument, but I think that that was definitely very much active in his, in his thinking about justice as this highly artificial virtue. Because it's such an artificial virtue, we have to work very hard to maintain these conventions, which could are fragile in various ways. Um, I mean, he does at one point say that if the entire nation state or community is put at risk, then justice can be suspended. But that's a particular kind of case where it's not just an individual sheep thief, but the whole society is put at danger. So he talks about how, you know, if the country is facing mass starvation and the only way to prevent everyone from starving is to break into the granaries of the wealthy tycoon who refuses to sell it at a reasonable rate, then the government would be justified in breaking the rules of property and, you know, in fact, stealing, uh, as it were, the, um, or individuals who are starving maybe in that case stealing the grain from the granaries. But that's a very extreme kind of dire case, which I think is quite different from the case that you have in mind. And there it's because the whole society is itself put at risk, and you won't have any justice if you don't have a society either. So it's, the stakes are just much higher. Um, so I'm speculating. I mean, I don't, to my, I'm not enough of a Hume scholar to know for sure. I, I don't know if he ever discusses that particular kind of case, but I'm sure you're right that he would have known about it. Does he ever show any awareness of such a repressive Well, he shows some awareness of that by talking about these groups like the levelers, but he doesn't seem to be too moved by that. I guess he has faith that the you know coercive apparatus of the state will be able to put down such insurrections, as as the English so often put down the Scots. I suppose maybe his historical experience, unfortunately, his historic his kind of historical experience might. Uh, 
have fed into that. I, I don't know, but he, for whatever reasons, he seems not to have been too moved by it. I mean, that's the same sort of point that comes up in debates between uh, Hobbes and Locke, right? So, um, you know, Hobbes takes an even harder line than, than Hume on this and uh, is not too worried about those kinds of considerations. I, mean, I think it's a genuine and legitimate consideration myself, but I don't think Hume was too moved by it as a matter of historical fact. Um, maybe he hadn't seen enough successful revolutions. So this would be something that comes up in the kind of uh, in relation to the passage I had about the law of nations and international justice, wouldn't it? So. So you have in mind non-human animals. I mean, so I, I think for Hume, the idea that justice could apply for non-rational creatures is meant to be problematic because they can't take part in these justice conventions of property and promise keeping. Um, I mean, he might agree with Kant that we could have duties with regard to them, but because they can't themselves directly participate in those conventions, we can't have duties to them in the same way that they can't have duties to us. It might be in our interest to treat them in a certain way, and that's what you've pointed out. Kind of, there, are kind of, there are anthropocentric reasons for environmentalism, and there are kind of more deep ecological reasons for environmentalism, which take the interests of those animals to heart. And I think Hume can endorse the kind of deep ecology view, actually, in principle, because uh, that could be understood in terms of reasons of beneficence and kindness to, to those non-rational, uh, but nonetheless sentient creatures. So certainly, with regard to sentient creatures, at least, I don't know what he would say about kind of the idea that an ecosystem as such has rights. He might find that implausible, but the idea that individual sentient creatures have utility and that should, you know, we should sympathize with them, even though it's more of a stretch, and so his humane account of sympathy builds on ideas of psychological resemblance and continuity and so on, so it would be more of a stretch for us, but I think he could make room for that in his view, because there are a number of ways in which we are quite similar in our physiological responses to pain, for example, uh, and so on, to a number of our non-human brethren. Uh, but when it comes to considerations of justice, your point would be, we, you know, we should treat these uh, animals as useful resources, I suppose. I mean, that's a more anthropocentric kind of argument, and th th I think there's a lot of truth in that, um, uh, uh, in, in, in the sense that preserving their habitats is in our interest. Deforestation contributes to global warming, and deforestation also, as it happens, leads to habitats which various animal species need to survive. So there's a kind of happy convergence between our self-interest and what's in the interest of those animals. But the reasons of justice for doing that would be what's in our mutual advantage Quay people who participate in conventions of justice. So it'd be no different than in the case of deforestation itself, quite apart from its effect on animals, right? Um, so you wouldn't want to say that we, ha I mean, I wouldn't want to say, there are some deep ecologists who might, I wouldn't want to say we have moral duties to a tree. Certainly not duties of justice to a tree. Um, now, if you think that's plausible, that's a kind of deeper disagreement. I, I think Hume uh, would, would see non-human animals in much the same light as the tree, because they're rational and helpless, and so don't enter into relations of mutual advantage uh, in the sense of being able to reciprocally engage with these conventions that we all benefit from. And so it's a kind of social contract -y idea. I mean, in one sense of social contract, uh, of course, Hume keeps massive scorn on the social contract tradition, the one on which you know there's thought to have been some original contract, whether implicit or explicit. I mean, he rightly heaps scorn on that view because that's deeply implausible as an empirical hypothesis. 
Uh, but in another sense, you could see Hume's view as being, and that's why Dave, this other paper by David Godier that my paper's title is an allusion to is David Hume Contractarian. You could think about mutual advantage in terms of what conventions we would all agree to if we were trying to produce conventions that made us all better off, so in terms of a hypothetical contract. But it's going to be people who can actually understand the conventions and comply with them, right? Otherwise, the idea of a social contract kind of breaks down. And so the cat and the dog, while having moral rights and we, uh, uh, we having moral duties to them, there'll be duties of beneficence and not of justice on this view. We might have duties of justice with regard to them, but that's no different than with regard to, I don't know, David Hume Tower, which we have duties of justice with regard to, to not <coughs> blow it up or whatever. Right. So your point today, then, Hume is going to be in that sort of Broadly speaking, yes. You, you could preserve Hume's sentimentalism and I think still have a more uh, deep ecology kind of view of the nature of justice, I suppose. I mean, I'm not too tempted by that view, so I'm not bending over backwards to see how a human can make sense of it. I do think we have moral obligations. I mean, I'm a vegan for moral reasons, so it's not that I don't think we have moral obligations to non-human animals. I just don't think they're reasons of justice. I think there are other kinds of reasons. Social contract theory provides one way of making sense of that. A kind of Kantian moral theory would be another um, although Kant goes too far and thinks that non-human animals fall outside of morality altogether apart from duties with regard to it. I think that's very implausible too, myself. I think we are fully out of time. I know okay. you have to get off. Thank you very much. And, and uh, other people do too. Uh, that's been a very interesting simulated session. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for your questions. This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh.